0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: We, uh, if you own a home in this city of Hamilton, if you are looking to own a home, if you have someone who wants to own a home, you know what's going on with the market right now, not just in Hamilton, all over Canada. We are seeing housing prices drop and some people say this is a fantastic thing because it's going to make things more affordable, others not so sure. Regardless, really interesting bit of analysis that I was reading a story about today about how this global change in what's happening with homes especially especially in canada australia and sweden is starting to mimic what happened 30 years ago when our housing market more than cooled it went really really sour eric cam is a professor at toronto metropolitan university uh director of the international economics and finance undergraduate program joins us now thank you for doing this anytime scott So when, look, as I say, I think there's an awful lot of people who probably say it's really good that the housing market has cooled off because it was going crazy and nobody could afford to get in. But when you look at what happened 30 years ago with housing, do you see any similarities? In other words, do you see any cause for not celebration that the market has cooled, but some concern?
0: Um, I see a lot of concern. And I mean, what you said, there's a lot to unpack there. You hear many people talking right now about the rise in the interest rate, and they make reference to the 1980s when interest rates rose. But if you really, Scott, if you really look at the macroeconomic data, this is becoming much more like the 1970s. And that was not a good economic period because that was a period of stagflation, which is when real gross domestic product is falling and the price level or the inflation rate is rising and that's where we are right now that is on the precipice of where we are right now so all of these economists me included who are predicting a recession this is what they're going on and they're and I say they're looking at the 1970s as a model and so I understand why I do every economic decision you're always going to have some people who win and some people who lose and that's what makes economics in a sense interesting but challenging But when you see the housing market as recessed as it is now, yeah, you might be one or two of the people who've moved from not being able to afford a house to being able to afford a house. But I'm very skeptical of that, Scott. I'm skeptical because that person who the house they wanted to buy, let's say they can now save $200,000 on that house. That's a lot of money. But you have no idea how much of that $200,000 is going to be made up in the higher interest payments. The problem is is that Ceteris is not Paribus. All things don't remain equal. So your house may be $200,000 cheaper, but I have friends who used to pay, I'll give you exact numbers on their $1 million mortgage. They used to pay $3,300 a month. Now they're paying $4,500 a month. That will erode the decrease in the house price faster. And so that's why my long winded answer is this is not a time to celebrate the housing market is recessed it very quickly is going to be depressed and there is no greater um, uh, visionary of the whole economy a foreshadow of the economy Scott than the housing market as the housing market goes so does the economy.
1: So when we look back at the seventies or uh, as this other analyst that I, that started this conversation pointed to the eighties when the housing market, I I had a friend whose father was involved in, you know, it was risky for sure. It was speculating. He bought big houses in Toronto and then flipped them and sold them. And when the market all of a sudden went for a poop, he was stuck holding it and went bankrupt. I mean, we knew, we remember if you were around in the eighties, what happened with housing, Do we really see those kind of signs or is that an overstatement? Was that a one-off? Have we somehow put protections in
0: place that would prevent something like that from happening again? We don't have protections as per se, but of course what we have is history. The people at the Bank of Canada are very bright. Mr. Polyev is wrong. They're smart people. And so they see the models of the 1970s and the 1980s and they don't want to replicate that. And I know what you're talking about because I've seen it on a macro level. I had friends of my parents, exactly like yours, talking about losing on on houses and losing on land. And then on a micro level, our neighbors, our wonderfully wonderful neighbors, when I was a young, young person, lost their house because the value of the debt became higher than the value of the house. And they put the keys under the door and had to walk away. Um so yeah I've seen this it, it's it, these are not the good old days that we're talking about now will interest rates go to 14 15 17 18% my answer is no i don't believe that'll happen because i don't believe the bank of canada will allow that to happen but that doesn't mean that there's hard safeguards in place that won't allow it to happen it means that i think that people have long memories Um, as you're talking about. And I think that the bank and the government, God, I hope the government and the bank work together so they don't have a repeat of those bad old days because this economy is fragile enough and it can't take a disastrous move like that. All right.
1: What about that idea? You just mentioned about the debt being greater than the value of the house. There are are a lot of people that we hear about all the time who have been in their house for 50 years and they bought it for $12,000 and it's now worth eight, nine hundred thousand. They're the ones who hit the lottery, but there's others in more recent years who paid eight, nine hundred, a million for their house. And now the market has dropped and now it may be worth a couple hundred thousand dollars less. Are they in trouble?
0: Not if they're going to hold their house and not if they can afford their monthly mortgage payments. The very best thing you tell them to do is what you tell someone to do when they hold a stock and it goes down. Nothing you ride it out and you hope that it goes back up again because after studying the economy for 25 years, the only thing I know with certainty, Scott, is what goes up must come down and then it goes back up again. And so if you can hold it, if you can afford the higher monthly payments, if you have to renegotiate, then you hold your house. It's only a loss if you sell it. So my advice to those people is to really, frankly, hang on for dear life. And I know that that's not great advice, but if we do i don't think we will but if we do return to a time of interest rates north of 13 14 15% then i'm very weary because then you have people that just cannot afford to renegotiate you can re- you can afford basically in canada to renegotiate from 2 or 3% to 4 or 5% but it is very few, if any, that can afford to go from four or five percent to 15 16 percent. So, I would really tell those people I don't have a crystal ball, but as an economist, if you can hold on to your home, even if it's lost a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, that's only on paper, hold on because this too shall pass.
1: Yeah, and, and again, this and this analyst that uh that started this conversation, uh, one of the really interesting things the three places that were highlighted as being the places that. The housing market in the 80s took the biggest hit. And right now are looking like because it was so inflated before Australia, Canada and Sweden, all history in that way, repeating itself, because those were areas where the housing market had gone berserk for the last number of years. Naturally, then those would, I guess, be the places that are going to take the biggest hit for now.
0: Well, that's right. And our housing market did nothing short of going berserk. And again, if you're one of the people that profited off that berserkness, You're pretty happy, but you got to remember that there's a lot of different people in the economy and every economic change, no matter what it is, creates winners and losers. And sometimes on a big level, we just say to ourselves, well, as long as there's more winners than losers. But we have to remember that winners and losers are people and we have to be weary of both. So it's really a very tenuous time right now. uh, But I would really, really caution people that have seen the value of their house to to drop to hold on because it's only on paper that it dropped
1: is it berserkness or berserkitude
0: uh i don't know i didn't go to your (laughs) university and we didn't study that at york
1: eric cam associate professor and the director of the international economics and finance undergraduate program at toronto metropolitan university always appreciate the time thanks for this
0: it's an honor stay healthy scott you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml
1: I think that every single person in this country would predict that there are parts of this country that have some resentment towards other parts of the country. I think we have certainly over the last 40, 50 years seen or expected that Quebec or at least some in Quebec would have resentment. More recently, I think we could probably assume that those out West, especially Alberta, might be feeling resentment, but a new study has been done looking at resentment Among the provinces at other provinces, it is a fascinating glimpse at this country. Charles Breton is Executive Director of the Centre of Excellence on the Canadian Federation. Uh, He joins us now. Charles, thank you for this. Really appreciate it.
2: It is my pleasure.
1: So as I say, I don't think that there is a single person in this country that would not have predicted, if you're talking about resentment, that Quebec and Alberta might be in the mix here. What I found fascinating when I looked at this, and probably a little troubling too, is that every single province has a fair amount of resentment? It seems towards other people in the country.
2: Um, yes, I mean, I that that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, one thing that I would say though is just it is resentment towards other provinces. It is also resentment about their own the the place of their own province within the whole federation, right? Sure. And so it's not just outwards looking at other provinces. These guys are not doing that, or these guys are doing this. It's also we feel like we are not like. For instance, there's one question about the culture of your province being misunderstood. There's one question about whether your province gets the province, your province gets the respect it deserves. So there's there's an element of that as well. And it's true that when we look at every province, and we so we combined eight questions together to create this index. Um, and every province, uh, to the exception to some extent of Ontario, which is almost at zero, so not not uh, not not that resentful. Uh, every province is on the right side of it which is on on the resentful side of it uh and again with some variation of course
1: you might, you mentioned two of the main things here let's go first one to culture because culture is one of the issues that leads to this and and unsurprisingly that would be where you would probably find most of is it fair to say most of quebec's resentment would come from there yes
2: yeah 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 is, so there's a lot so so when we look at culture and again this makes sense when you think about it for a second uh, uh when you think at at, at people feeling like the culture of their province is misunderstood um uh quebec comes out on top with newfoundland not far behind um uh just a, an, an aside uh, uh we did we, we do have data on the territories which we did not include in this uh and all the territories also feel like their culture is really misunderstood which they're probably right um uh and so yeah, so on, on the culture side, it is at, at least at the top those that you would expect. So Quebecers and 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 people in Newfoundland and Labrador. The one thing that's interesting to me, and you did mention Alberta and Saskatchewan as as provinces that are resentful. It is clear when we're looking at this that in their case, it has it is not about culture. It's not like they feel like the culture of their province is mis- is misunderstood. It's completely something else, and it's about it's it's about the economy and it's about spending and it's about how they contribute economically to the country
1: just before we get there one more thing about culture uh, one thing i would think and we're going to get to this as well we're sort of jumping around here resentment is probably not a great thing to be having across the country so you would want to have a solution for this culture though to me seems like a difficult one to have an easy or even a, a not easy solution to it it's really going to be difficult, I would think, for some of these places, whether it's the territories, whether it's the Atlantic provinces, Quebec, especially, to to bridge that gap because the culture, Quebec's culture is never going to become Alberta's culture. It just never is. So that seems like it's a difficult one to deal with.
2: It is. I mean, of course, the question here is about the culture being misunderstood. So I guess in that sense, there is some work. Again, I, like, I don't know what the solution is, but you could think about ways to for someone to feel like their culture is, their culture is distinct. So I think that's one thing, uh, but it being misunderstood, I think is what is doing the work here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and I'm not sure, to be honest with you, I'm not sure what the solution here, uh, uh, is in terms of how do we make people who, who feel like they have a distant culture also feel like that, at least that culture, that, that culture is not misunderstood. I think, I think you're right though, that, that this is, that that's a difficult one to, uh, to, uh, fix i'm not sure fix is the right word but no but that's more
1: that's more into the dna anyone who's been to quebec understands anyone who's been to alberta understands anyone who's been to the atlantic provinces understands Mm -hmm. they are it's a different world and whether it's respect or anything else it's 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 going to be difficult because that's burned into who they are the other part though and and this is a really interesting one um is the, the the sense of Um, resentment that their contribution to the country is either too much and they're not getting enough back or it's not being regarded as giving enough. Mm -hmm. This one's a more interesting one because this one does seem like it's got possible solutions to it. I don't know Mm -hmm. if they are real, but this is a fixable one potentially anyway.
2: Uh, I, I think you're right. And in that sense, and to be honest, like the elites, the politicians have a role to play here because it's a lot about how we communicate and talk about those things. Um, And it's clear, too, that there are differences in how people in different provinces view their own contribution, the contribution of their own province and the contribution of others. And and we talk about it in the paper. Um, There is definitely a lot of resentment there uh, uh, for Alberta and Saskatchewan and even Manitoba to some extent. They do feel like they're contributing more than their fair share. And to be honest, the schedule in Alberta, they, like, when we think about what the discussions that, that, that have happened there uh, over the last uh, uh, year or so, especially in Alberta, about the, the referendum on equalization, there was a, t- a lot of talk about about uh, about that and about the fact that Alberta were, were contributing a lot uh, uh, to equalization, for instance, and not getting anything back because, of course, Alberta is not getting equalization. Uh, 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 so that was really, really in, in the discourse, but what we see, and, and to be honest, every province feel like it's contributing more than its fair share. Naturally. Uh, but but the extent to which they do it differs, right? Uh, but where there's a difference is that some provinces, again, Saskatchewan, Alberta, see it as a zero-sum game, which is if we are contributing more than the others, it means that others are not contributing enough. And in that case, uh, specifically Quebec. And Quebec is completely separate, different in that regard. Like Quebecers feel like their province is contri- contributing, like about its fair share, right? Uh, uh, but also feel like the others are contributing their fair share. Like there, there's no zero sum game. Like we might be contributing a bit more, but like everyone's kind of doing what they should, and and there's no resentment towards another region. There's resentment about the whole country not understanding the culture, uh, maybe not respecting the province enough. But in terms, in terms of contribu- contribution. There's, there's no kind of, of reaction or resentment towards other regions in terms of their own contribution to the country, which I thought to me was kind of a surprise and interesting.
1: Well, and, and also with that, what I found interesting, if I'm reading this right, is that most places in the country, to some degree, share the West's view that they are contributing a lot. But other places who think they're contributing a lot, the rest of the country doesn't necessarily share that view.
2: Yeah, no, that's true, and 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 so again, going back to what we were saying about the West, you're absolutely right. So the West has a point in a sense because everyone shares their view that the West is contributing more than its fair share. Uh, again, there's some variation in there, but it, it is it it is true. Um, also, every province agrees with the West and and thinks that Quebec is not is not is contributing less than its fair share. With which, in a way, is a bit of an issue as well. So you're absolutely true there that uh, um, the rest of the country shares the views of the West on the West's contribution to the country. So in a way, there's there's some they they shouldn't feel that resentful against other provinces because they 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 do share their their own views on that.
1: There's so many more things I would love to talk to about this, and I wish we had time to get into what some of the political answers are. I don't know that there are political answers, but maybe is the opposite. Just before we go, is the opposite of resentment respect? If, if governments or politicians of all stripes respected other places or or very publicly went out of their way to respect it, would that mm. help to navigate some of this, do you think? Or is that too simple?
2: Well, I, I think so. And, and I mean, again, it is, some of some of it is in a way simple. Uh, I do think so. I, I do think it, it also matters how you thought you, 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 you speak about things, how you mention things again. The debate, and, and it's not just that, but the debate about equalization, equalization in Alberta, and about like a, a provincial autonomy in Alberta, is often done or discussed in terms that reference Quebec. Uh, sometimes you just say we want what Quebec has. Um, And and so that creates that 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 seeps into people's mind and I think creates this this feeling that there's a province over there that has what we want and is probably not contributing what we were contributing. For instance, Quebec is getting equalization. So the way people talk about these things uh, uh, matters. I will also say, though, that that there is politically and the implications of this and and we'll keep tracking it uh, the, the 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 survey that's this that this is based on is is an annual survey is the first year we do this index with the survey it's the fourth year of the survey but going forward we'll do it every year and try to track if anything changes mm-hmm. in there uh, but one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the solutions to the the, the challenges of, of the Federation have been what we call uh, um, uh, uh, asymmetrical federalism so to give something to Quebec, That other provinces might not have. Well, it seems that that solution is creating other problems that we need to deal with in the future. Yeah,
1: it is. uh, We got to run. Unfortunately, it's it's really, really interesting. People can find it. Go to center spelled the Canadian way c e n t r e dot i r p p dot org if they want to read more about this. Charles Breton, executive director, Center of Excellence on the Canadian Federation. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me.
2: You're listening to the Scott
1: Radley
0: Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: As everybody knows, I hope by now, Monday is the municipal election. And there are so many parts about this uh, that are really important for all kinds of reasons. But there is one wild card coming up in this election that could change things significantly. And that is the idea that at some point in this term, our mayor, along with some other mayors of some other larger cities, may be granted strong mayor powers. And that sounds kind of like Manuel Noriega kind of stuff. I don't think it's the same. It's not strong man powers, slightly different, but it does give the mayor a whole lot more ability to do things. And yet, as I've talked to people recently, I've discovered that most people really don't know exactly what this entails. Well, let me bring in my next guest because he does. And he can walk us through some of this. John Mascaren is a lawyer with Aird and Burles uh, who specializes in municipal law. He joins us now. John, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. This is one that um, this is a pretty American thing, right? This is not uncommon in the States. We've already seen this work in a lot of cities there, right? Yeah, definitely.
3: Um, my my latest stats that I just looked up over lunch was that about forty four percent of municipalities in the United States have some form of a strong mayor system, uh, as opposed to here in Canada, where we don't have any to date.
1: And really, but um, it, it's it's different, but it's in some ways it's similar to our provincial and federal systems correct because i know that we don't have our prime minister has a vote in the house of commons our premier has a vote at queens park but they carry much 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 more weight and can sway opinion and direct votes way more than any mayor can so it would be a move kind of more towards that would it not it would. It's very much uh, like that. that your, your
3: comparison to the, the federal and provincial levels is, is a good one because there you have party politics, you have political parties. And so the leader of the party, uh, sometimes when there's a majority, can rule the roost uh, in the same way that potentially a mayor can if given these strong mayor
1: powers. So let's get into this for a second, because if this was to happen and we know that Toronto and Ottawa, we know that Toronto and Ottawa are getting this, correct? That's already been determined. It has been determined. It's been made very clear in the legislation, which
3: uh, hasn't been proclaimed in force yet. And the regulations aren't there, but it's uh, it's been very clear indication that by November the 15th, the beginning of the council terms after the election next week, the mayors of Toronto and
1: Ottawa will have these powers. And then comes places like Hamilton afterwards. Now, we've heard that that could follow. What, do you, what would you expect would be the make or break decision that would determine whether or not whoever wins here ends up with those powers? Well, it's really fascinating, Scott, because if you looked at it, at
3: first they were touted to be for Ottawa, Toronto. Why? Well, because they need to have affordable housing. And those are the two municipalities in the province that are shovel ready. In fact, That's what the debates said at uh, Queen's Park. Then it became, well, you know, uh, we're going to test it out and we'll we'll see. Uh, We'll put in a a power in the Municipal Act that we can designate other municipalities for these same powers. And then just the other day, it's like, well, we're going to extend them next year. Well, I thought it was going to be a pilot uh, in Toronto and Ottawa just to see, first of all, are they going to be even used? And two, if they are used do they actually work for their intended purposes? Looks like we're going to bypass all that and just go to them next
1: year. So what would this... Okay, let's walk through this because here is... And this is where this becomes very important. And let me just back up for one second. When people are voting on Monday, yes, you're probably voting for a mayor that you like their policies. Maybe you like them personally. Maybe you think that they would be a better representative of the city than someone else, all kinds of reasons. But you could potentially then be voting for someone that you are giving much, much, much more power to than Fred Eisenberger has had in the past or Bob Bertina or Larry Dianney or go all the way back to whomever you want to. So what would this actually mean? In in practical terms, let's take an issue here, and housing is a big one because Hamilton obviously is another city that's got big housing issues. So we're moving forward now. Mayor X wins, and they become a strong mayor in Hamilton. What could they then do with that power? This is the key question.
3: Right now, people have, I think, misunderstood what the strong mayor powers uh, uh, intend to do. They are only intended for the moment, and except with one carve out, which deals with the municipal budget. Right now, they are only intended to be used to further provincial priorities and that's what the province says they believe or it believes is important for municipalities to do and at the moment the only two provincial priorities that have been uh stated to be coming into force would be housing so uh to get housing moving especially affordable housing and second infrastructure related to housing that's it it doesn't talk about things like public transit, uh, uh, hockey arenas, uh, or anything else for the moment. It could potentially, uh, and you'll see some people want to elasticize and make this flexible, possibly say, well, hold on. We know it doesn't say public transit, but isn't that infrastructure related to the provision of affordable housing? And I suppose that's an argument that you could make. So, Scott, just to be very clear, at the moment, It appears to be much more narrow than people think. The mayors of these strong mayor cities, initially Toronto and Ottawa, don't have jurisdiction to just do anything that they want. They may have a little bit more jurisdiction to deal with uh, affordable housing and infrastructure related to housing.
1: Okay, so as a lawyer then, um, you get asked uh, uh, for your... uh, I'm coming to you for an opinion on this. So I am now a mayor and I say... I can only do things to do with housing, but if I put in bike lanes as part of my strong mayor powers and push for that, that will allow for more housing because of I don't know. You come up with whatever reason you want. I mean, you could. People are clever; they can come up with 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 these connections. how How loosely do you think that that could be applied under the law as written? well i think it could
3: be applied as loosely as the head of council determines it to be and because the it's in the head of council the mayor's uh opinion that's how the legislation's been written so your your example of of housing uh, of, sorry of bike lanes is very good because you're going to say in order to get to more affordable housing uh perhaps the people in uh, these uh, new units that are to be created will have different modes of transportation and won't be relying on having two cars for every every uh, every apartment or every uh, townhouse or every single family dwelling. What they're going to do is they're going to use um, a bicycle transportation, public transit a lot more. So that would be infrastructure possibly related to the provision of affordable housing so i could certainly see the argument being made and the determination in the mayor's opinion saying yeah
1: more bike lanes are necessary and you could extend that i would think then you could extrapolate that further we would also then need better transit we would need more communities uh community buildings we would need better parks i mean you could theoretically and i don't know that this would go but theoretically you could argue almost anything then as a necessity for housing if you if you wanted to try i guess
3: and that's the debate that we were having in our office today is that second one not so much the affordable housing but the infrastructure related doesn't that include just about everything and you could possibly do that Um, i think the province deliberately worded it to be very broad and possibly over-inclusive to see what kind of traction it would get and to see what comes out. Uh, potentially, of course, uh, through a regulation, which doesn't mean it has to go through a three readings at the legislature, the minister could just create a regulation to say uh, infrastructure related to housing means what it says, but it excludes these things specifically. For instance, bike lanes, your example.
1: And I would be kind of surprised if, let's say, John Tory or in Ottawa, whoever wins there, were to really push the limits of this. I kind of would be surprised if the province, after just giving them more powers, immediately then tries to rein in those powers and says, oh, that's not what we really meant. Maybe I'm wrong. I would be surprised if immediately the pushback was on. I I would Totally agree with you. Uh, It's it's possible. Is
3: it very likely? Probably not. And would they be used immediately um, uh, to to affect things that might be on the edge or, you know, on the fence could go either way? Probably not. I think the mayors would probably
1: be a little more judicious uh, because these things, of course, can be challenged. We, uh, something else that's in this, and I think it's a more minor part of this for sure, but one of the things that I read, I don't know if I read this correctly, is that there could be certain staff, municipal staff, that the new strong mayor could hire to do certain jobs. Am I right? That's absolutely right. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to misspeak
3: about some of the powers there. Yes, the mayor is given the authority to carry out certain functions, uh, irrespective of provincial priorities. And for instance, uh, in uh, uh, with respect to the head of uh, of council and the authorities uh under the municipal act uh the mayor can uh or actually is given the uh, uh the power to uh appoint the chief administrative officer um and give directions directly to municipal employees set the organizational structure for the municipality those are things that before only council could do. And now it appears that the mayors uh, in Toronto and Ottawa and potentially others will be given those authorities.
1: By definition, if you are given the power to hire these people, would you also be given permission to fire people? Yes, it goes uh, It goes to the, the way it's written. It says the power to hire,
3: dismiss or exercise any other employment powers with respect to various persons. There are a number of carve outs. So your statutory officers, which are um, uh, officials that are designated under the statute that every municipality must have. For instance, the clerk, who's the record keeper, the treasurer, who's the chief financial officer, uh, the auditor general those the mayor those those bodies those persons the the mayor could
1: not hire or fire no but that even without that 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 theoretically again it does potentially allow a mayor to bring people into jobs who are supportive of them to build their own sort of little kingdom there that would back what they want to do correct you're absolutely correct just just look at on the
3: list i took a look the chief planner is not on the list. So that's a, a very key person, isn't it in any municipality, the person who sets the vision for what kind of urbanized setting are you going to have into the future? How, you know, what kind of density are you going to allow in the municipality? And you're right. The if the mayor can hire that
1: person or fire the right. current chief planner, that's pretty significant. Well, because how many times, and and look, anyone who follows Hamilton Council here knows how many times, and it probably is the same in every city, but how many times council reverts back to staff for a report? Well, if the staff is simply a mouthpiece of the mayor, I think you could probably predict what kind of reports you're going to get back to council. It's going to be things that reflect that view of that mayor. And that's, I think, the way the legislation has been set up. That's right. One of the really interesting things, we only have a couple of minutes left on this. It's a fascinating topic because it is so impactful, potentially. One of the really interesting things, John Tory in Toronto has said, absolutely, with this power, I will use this. In Ottawa, the two leading mayoral candidates, I believe, have both said, I'm not really interested in using this. But I find that really hard to believe, John, because in any government, in any place where you hand someone power, Show me the person who doesn't use that power or gives power back. I don't remember seeing that happening too often. Once this is in place, I think everybody would use it.
3: I agree with you, Scott. I think once the power is there, it's easy to say. Right now, uh, candidates for election, oh, I don't want to do that. I will be, uh, I will compromise. I will give, Mm. you know, council the authority to tell me what to do. But what happens when push comes to shove and council's not coming along with perhaps the vision of the mayor and the mayor's strong will? Usually, mayors are pretty strong will. They that's (laughs) how they get there, right? And so, yeah, I, I I agree with you. Uh it'd be, it'd be extraordinary to see someone saying, well, I have the power. You know what? I'm just not going to do it, even though council's not doing what I think is best for the municipality.
1: We do have in built into this a veto system uh, where if even with a strong mayor, two thirds of council could vote it down, correct? That's correct. So there is a bit of a fail safe there. There is, provided that the council is sort of evenly spread out, because this would also mean that if the mayor's views were reflected by, in Hamilton's case, even six councillors, that would prevent that two-thirds from ever kicking in. Almost everything then the mayor wanted would go through. That's right. It's a supermajority of two thirds, and uh, certainly has been criticized
3: by a number of people as that that's being uh, uh, undemocratic. Of course, if you reverted back to the uh, the simple majority, then. It really wouldn't be strong mayor legislation, would it? Because then it'd be too easy for then council to veto it. Uh, You know, you could have gone to a super, super majority, which would have been three quarters, which would make it, you know, nearly impossible. I think two thirds was the
1: bit of the compromise. Yeah, it's uh, look, if, if this is if the thing that if you vote for the person who wins as mayor and they support your views, this is a great system. if if you're on the other side, it's going to be a long four years. Um, You know, and and the flip side is we got to go and let me just ask you this. I mean, the mayor is unique. We we don't treat the mayor really as unique in Ontario cities because they just get one vote, but the mayor is the only person who is voted by all the citizens. So, I I mean, I'm still undecided because I haven't seen it in at work here we've seen in the states i'm still undecided but i i do wonder if all along the mayor should have had some extra kind of oomph behind what they do i just don't know if this is the oomph right and i think this is just historical here in canada we've always been
3: with the weak mayor system you know the mayor is one member of council has to work through a series of compromises and concessions, you know, tried to build consensus on behalf of council. That's the way it's always been. And this, quite honestly, is extraordinary. It's uh, it's not in any other jurisdiction in Canada. And I think a lot of other provinces are looking to see what happens here. Is it going to be successful? Uh, and it, might it be a way to, you know, disentangle some of the logjam and the long, Absolutely. long, year-long debates that council for, you know, matters that, uh, you know, the public just doesn't understand why is it taking months or even years on
1: things? We will see, but it certainly makes the vote on Monday even that much more important who you cast the vote for. Who do you want, if you're voting for a mayor, which person do you want having that extra power? That's something to contemplate as you go to the polls. John Mascaren, a uh, lawyer with Aird and Berlin, uh, Berlis pardon me, uh, spe- specializes in municipal affairs. Thank you so much for doing this. Very much appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Scott.